0: You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. I
1: got a bad feeling about this. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! He's looking at you, kid.
0: What we got here is a failure to communicate. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk?
1: So, as soon as this movie ended, I thought to myself, oh my god, this must be one of the most polarizing movies I've ever seen. Everybody I know is either gonna love or hate this. Uh, which polarity would you say you came down on?
0: Uh, I think, uh,. Contrary to your point, I ended up somewhat in the middle. <laughs> I, think had a lot of, <laughs> I think it had a lot of things to like, and, um, and I enjoyed it throughout, but there's just a. It, it's the same thing that I sort of had with uh, Alex Garland's other movie that I've seen, Ex Machina, where just the ideas are good and the visuals are good, and there's just a few nagging things about the plot that prevent me from fully enjoying it. But overall, you know, I enjoyed my experience watching it. I'd say I'm in the in the like-it crowd, but not in the love-it.
1: Okay, so you mentioned some problems with the plot. I can come up with four or five things myself, but let's hear yours <laughs> first, I guess.
0: Something that always seems to, to nag me about something like this is, so this movie, for the first half an hour to an hour, seemed very much like sort of an American adaptation of Stalker, the uh, movie by Andrei Tarkovsky. You know, there's this zone, and things happen, and nobody's really sure what it is, And people that enter it, things happen to them and it affects their mental state. They go, you know, everyone goes insane or they die. And you follow the characters in, you know, and you watch their progression and the way that he cuts around things to make, to leave gaps also sort of brings you on the journey of, you know, losing touch with where they are and what, and what's going on. And, and then all of a sudden, they would just cut back, keep cutting back to where she's being interrogated that to me just totally takes me out of you know I think sort of looking for the same experience of of stalker where you sort of get inside everyone and you go insane with them and you you know you can't really separate yourself and then every time it cuts back to the stale quarantine area, it just I I, I just tuned out, basically.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, basically three timelines they're cutting around there. Mm -hmm. And the jumping around in time mirrors the book in a very general sense, but the book actually does it very differently. The book starts with them in Area X and you have no idea what's going on. You just know there's an expedition and you flashback to all the stuff with the husband much later in the book. Uh, So it maintains that sort of jumping around uh, but it otherwise completely changes it
0: to me it feels sort of like a crutch of the way that american movies are supposed to tell narrative where once you sort of finish an idea you you have to jump to the next one right you can't if you're not sure where something leads in this plot line you just jump to the next plot line right so it allows things to sort of break but i guess my preference or what i what i find more interesting is if instead of just cutting away to something different you just you just cut away like like an Ozu would do. You just show a a large vista or a landscape or something where you have time to think, you have time to process, but you don't, you're not taken out of the moment. I feel like the film, if it, if it utilized those in in a proper way, it, I would be caught up in it the whole way through.
1: Yeah, it's a very challenging film. Um so why not kind of lean into the crazy rather than keep trying to situate us, right? It's going to be it's going to challenge you regardless with the way it ends. So why hold mm-hmm. your hand like specifically instead of those vistas you talk about, instead of those it basically had the title cards. Yeah. And and that just seemed wildly unnecessary.
0: It had the title cards and it had the you know the interviews uh sort of placing placing her thoughts in the moment and it had the Scenes with the husband placing her thoughts going into the expedition and a lot of times i prefer to leave the psychology to just watching how they interact instead of you know forming the foundation with the interviews and with the past scenes in a very blunt way
1: just a half measure um yeah it's like it's, we're gonna try to we're gonna hold your hand through a little bit of this and then we're just gonna go completely crazy in the end anyway and you mentioned sort of an american style movie That's kind of what the first half of the movie feels like, you know, there's a little more gunplay, and oh, we're all gonna go on this dangerous expedition. And the second half of the movie is just insane, and doesn't really feel like the first half at all.
2: Which is interesting, because that literally dovetails into the theme, because it's about an uncontrolled mutation off of the first, where it doesn't actually connect initially
1: right yeah the first movie is annihilated and then we get a whole second movie
2: (laughs) (laughs) well what brendan was saying about stalker so in the book if i'm correct they refer to each other as professions which is just like stalker yes yeah Um, but then this one they actually use names so that that just i thought that was interesting that like actually the 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 stalker uh, point of reference might have actually already predated the screenplay altogether so uh the interview scenes are definitely added in late because they're not in the screenplay at all uh, and i actually looked it up those were, those were those are actually those are um, all filmed after the main shooting I forgot that that's of- the thing
0: you always did was, uh, <laughs> screenplay. <laughs> Correct,
2: right? And so, yeah, those are those are those are just those are completely tacked on. And I agree, where it's um, uh, they were filmed after the main, the principal photography, and all that kind of stuff. So they were just tacked on where they must have looked at the film, and then I don't know who distributed the film, but maybe that was even pressure from them. It's like, hey, this movie um, might be a little bit hard for what they were hoping. I think was going to be kind of a medium blockbuster, and so they're like, we have to put in some sort of explanations in here, and so they do feel a little bit out of place most of the way through. Four scenes that are so tacked on they didn't disrupt my enjoyment as much. I think actually you put it well at the beginning. I just kind of tuned out during them. But they didn't make me upset, like, some of the times when when movies add in those kind of things and actually kind of takes away a lot of the fun. It was just, oh, this is kind of unnecessary.
1: Maybe you can help me with something then. Uh, I was wondering if one scene in particular, or a couple actually, were in the screenplay. There's a big difference from the book, which is that in the book, she's basically autistic. I mean, she's probably on the spectrum. She is interested—she's a biologist in both of them, right? But in the book, she's interested in ecosystems, like swamps and ponds and things. She talks about, as a child, being obsessed with this unkempt pool in the backyard where these uh, things were happening. I do not remember if that's the first or second book, but in either sense, she's obsessed with little ecosystems and creatures and not really people so much. In this one, she's obsessed specifically with people, right? Cells and, and DNA and things like that. So it's a, a bit of a tweak. But in the movie, she's a pretty relatable person. They have those fun little flashbacks with the husband where they're joking around and they're super relatable and all that. And oh, what a happy little relationship they've got. In the book, it's clear that she has a very cold relationship with her husband. And I was kind of wondering if maybe some of those scenes were added too because what's relatable in a book, the threshold there is different than for a movie. You could say that someone like that would not make a very good movie hero. I would actually say that
2: vibe, the difference between the book and the film is stronger in the screenplay, actually. The screenplay is more of an action film. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but this film's kind of like a sci-fi with the... Good splash of horror i would say in it where the screenplay is sci-fi with action it's the the tense kind of horror scenes um really aren't as present in the screenplay like when she's first kind of captured and like they they trank her and she's in the in the facility she actually like um grabs another trank out of a guard's hand and like has this escape scene it's 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 good it's, it's completely an action thing where it's um in the in the film it's more psychological, everybody's kind of uh colder in the film and more calculating in the film, so I think it actually it might even go
1: back towards the book in, a, in yes, a way that is much closer to the book, yeah,
2: to answer your question directly. The scenes where she's loving and affectionate and kind of like uh they have that actually I really liked the um the scene where she's teasing the um Kane about uh looking up the moon, the yeah, same moon right. kind of a thing, and it's like actually like kind of like a sweet moment, but you're right that that's very um it's very normalized. One of the problems I actually had with that is um, I did not have a good understanding of why their relationship failed at all. It just seems like it did. Yeah. Um, where in the book it sounds like there's more of a clear direction to what the miscommunication was, because in the film it's just it's kind of presented just as, oh, she just she just has a self-destructive tendency, and everybody does. But yeah. it doesn't seem to have a specific character in the film of what her self-destructive tendency for the relationship was and that
1: bothered me a little bit because i just didn't understand why uh, she didn't have much of a motivation to cheat right he, he kind of wasn't around but that didn't seem to fit with anything else we'd seen that wasn't reason enough and similar to that related to that there's this whole thing where obviously they're trying to establish that she misses her husband and then he shows up and there's a big emotional reunion within the first 10 minutes we i mean we don't care at that point you know we haven't yeah. established that she's miserable without him we haven't established their relationship so there's no impact there at all like none at all. And you're right, yeah, in the book it's more like you're you're interested in these abstract systems more than you're interested in me, your husband. So there's sort of this and he's not around anyway, so then he pulls back and it's just this cycle and it it's actually pretty well thought out. It feels like a a, a true to life broken relationship that's not just you know, one partner's horribly abusive or awful to the other. It's just, like, they're never quite on the same wavelength, and then there's, like, petty little retributions or petty little punishments or withholdings, and then it just sort of adds up, and then next thing you know, it's ten years later, and the marriage is falling apart. So it's, that's pretty good in the book, but in the movie, the whole thing is just rushed and uh, not very well thought out.
0: It was like, can we just squeeze an act in the first 15 minutes and then get to where we actually want to be? <laughs> yeah. It was like, we need we need you to you know, to understand some type of motivation about the character. We need a reason why she cares to go in there other than science, because it's semi-Hollywood and no one loves science. They only love people. So <laughs> it's
1: like... <laughs> science, not scientists. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It really felt just like a, a weak way to try to get you to understand why they cared to to go through it, which, yeah, that, that didn't work.
1: It's funny. It's just so b- backwards in the book. They mention... Uh, they only refer to each other by professions in the book. It's the biologist, the psychologist, uh, and you, they start off right in there and it's all about the science at first. And then they introduce that she has this ulterior motive later in the book for her husband having been in there too. So that's totally flipped and I think it, re- it definitely loses something there.
2: The first time I watched it, I actually saw this in theaters because I probably wouldn't have, but I had just gotten the movie pass thing. And it worked great, by the way. I love this thing. Um, it's probably going to go away and totally burn. I hear they're losing tons of money, but while it's still, <laughs> while it's still going on, I am abusing this system. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, so I saw it in theaters, didn't catch this at all during the scene, but when I watched it again, when we're at that scene of the reunion, right, there's a Crosby, Stills, and Nash song called Helplessly Hoping. And I didn't actually really love the, the sound of the music in the first half.
1: Oh, so weird. So weird in the first half. Stringy, folksy, yeah. indie music. And then the second half is all trance techno vibrations or whatever. Yes. And I,
2: oh, man, man, like, well, we'll get to that later. But I love the sound. Of the second but album. you know,
1: you're right. It, it stood out so weird in the first half.
2: And I, I actually sat for a while trying to figure out if there was a point, if there's some sort of metaphor there. And there might be. But anyway, so but from the Crosby, Stills and Nash song, I was like, okay. They could have put anything in here for, like, a, a woman who's thinking about her dead husband. There's a lot of love songs you can put in here, right? So the second time, I was like, why did they choose this song? This song actually doesn't doesn't communicate this idea as as well as I want. So I really focused in on it and actually it is perfect oh my god they did such a great job yes are you about to read some lyrics to us i am about to read some lyrics <laughs> to you so they actually set up the scene to the song so when he reaches the top of the stairwell literally the song says uh, stand by the stairway uh when right right when he's at the top uh, stand by the stairway you'll see something certain to tell you confusion has its cost yeah the first part is um Hopelessly hoping, her harlequin hovers nearby, which uh, is before he's before he's in the house, and I'm assuming like he's hovering, uh, wordlessly watching. He waits by the window uh, as he's kind of like coming up there. But the most interesting part is actually, and I think this is initially. The thing that drew um, whoever was making the music selection—I guess I just might have been Garland at this point—is um, they are one person, they are two alone, they are three together, they are four for each other, which is a callback to her dividing yes. idea early in the film, right? And so I'm almost positive that that was actually what they were going for initially. Was they just uh, they had, either he had had that song in mind where it's kind of like this dividing theme, and then they were just like we can actually set up the scene where. It actually follows the, like the, like the slight narrative of this song.
1: Yeah, it feels a little forced to me, but uh, it is interesting that they clearly went so far out of their way to do that. Yeah, if yeah. that
0: was a reuniting scene, maybe in the last third, then it could have been emotional. But it was like right out the bat, and I I heard the lyric matching with the scene, and I I just it, it didn't really work for me.
1: So let's talk a little bit about those horror aspects that you mentioned earlier. I usually on these podcasts I don't like spend a lot of time just gushing about a thing I liked because. Anyone can do that, and that's not really interesting, right? We like to pick things apart, rather. But I will make an exception here for the boar with the human scream. That is one of the purest expressions of, like, deep psychological horror that I think I've ever seen in a movie. Like, even not liking the movie as a whole that much, that was stunning.
2: Yes, and actually, in the screenplay, that was another action scene, and I'm so glad they changed that up, (laughs) because that scene is fantastic, where it's super tense, like, So in the screenplay, they're screaming at each other like, cut me out, cut me out, white girl, they're like the thing, and it's like this action thing, but instead in the film, you have that that head just kind of hovering nearby, and -hmm. it would just like open its mouth a little bit and have the screams come out. Uh, Yeah, a fantastic scene.
1: Yeah, and the funny thing is, when I realized what was happening, when it kind of comes around the corner and does that noise, I'm like, okay, I see what's happening now. And my first instinct was, this is like a cheap, easy way to generate horror. It's like, it's too supernatural, right? It's not just mutations anymore. There's like this weird essence of this person in the boar but then it was just so well done that even finding it like so on the nose and so like manipulative I I, st- I didn't care it was so good the only thing that bugged me about that scene was the don't react because I don't understand it's not a t-rex yeah <laughs> like- <laughs>
2: exactly exactly I- <laughs> Yeah, sure. I mean, you know nothing about this. Nobody knows anything about what this thing is going to attack for.
1: Everybody knows that alien mutant boars' vision are based on movement. Like everybody knows that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but pretty good though. Oh, speaking of alien though, the uh, you, in the opening sequence, you see a meteor hit the lighthouse. I assume that registered as a meteor with both of you, right? Mm -hmm. That's basically a mystery in the book. They're asking about what caused this, like, the whole freaking book. And I think at the end there's some reference to, oh, we think a meteor landed or something. Or she gets to the lighthouse and it looks like a meteor hit it or something like that. And so that's kind of, like, news, right? That's news to them because obviously anyone who goes in doesn't come out or doesn't come out the same. So nobody in the book leading up to the expedition or during the initial expedition knows that, right? Because nobody's come back to report on what the lighthouse actually looks like. So because they don't know, we don't either. But in here, it's basically like, oh, yeah, here's a meteor in the first five minutes. Uh, so right off the bat, we know it's alien or probably alien. I, I don't know. It seems like a really weird thing to disclose because that's the fundamental mystery here is what, what is causing this. You know, what is it?
2: Yeah, because the, the mystery that's left over is – so it's clearly alien, but whether or not it's – What does it want? Yeah. What does it want? And then at first, you're not sure if it's like an alien attack, like if this is is – this is like a – biological warfare kind of thing that aliens send on the planets they want to take over, or if this is literally an alien just landing on the planet and it's just doing what it wants to do.
1: That's obviously, it's going to get into the meaning of the film a little bit here because we're kind of talking about the ending and what does it want and all that. I mean, it's clearly establishing, and this part is consistent with the book, Lena in the book sort of realizes that it's not destructive. You know, the whole thing about it doesn't necessarily want anything, that's consistent in both the book and the film. And obviously when you contrast it with cancer cells, you know, the idea is that there's a distinction between destruction and change, right? The fact that something is destroyed, it doesn't necessarily mean that that what's destroying it is inherently destructive. It's just changing things in a way that aren't conducive to life for that other thing anymore. Only at the end of the film do we see pure destruction, which is fire, right? Ash is not anything. Ash is nothing. It reduces everything to being the same. But cancer cells are just different cells. You know, they're destructive for our purpose purposes, but they're still a form of life, so to speak. So what's bad to us is not to quote-unquote them, whatever them is. And that actually ties really well into the kind of like topography uh, inside Area X. It's a swamp. Swamps are brimming with life. There's more life in a swamp than basically any other type of environment, but for people, they're death. They're horrible to live in, they're disgusting, they're diseased, and they're dangerous.
2: Going off of the environment in particular, though, I didn't really think about the swamp aspect, but I did think about the gulf aspect. Because um, I was reading this interview or like, I guess it's just like a piece where the original author was just talking about uh, how he how he was going through and writing the book. Um, just like came up when i was like googling annihilation right um and so like he he had written annihilation and the rest of the trilogy because i guess it's a trilogy um, which i had actually just never heard of these books at all
1: they're not that famous no
2: and so he had dental surgery and then like got a really bad bronchial infection afterwards and like basically made like this weird pact with the universe to like write this book during this like these weird fever dreams and stuff that he was having, which kind of makes sense. Yep. But specifically he was processing, uh, cause he lived in, I want to say like Florida or something like that. He was processing the remainder of his fear around the Gulf spill that had happened in the two thousands. And, and as soon as like, he mentioned the Gulf spill I was like, Oh, that actually fits uh, with the movie very well, where it's like for a long time, it seemed to him like, this is just never going to stop that this will just keep happening and it'll just keep spreading. There's a scene in the movie where, Ventris uh, Ventress has a, um, picture of how the shimmer is spreading, um, right behind her. And it looks, the way it looks is exactly like the kind of the form of an, like oil spill and oil has like, kind of like an iridescent quality where yes. it has like that shimmering mm-hmm. kind of thing. It made a lot of sense where it's just like this thing that's just kind of pouring out, changing all the life around it.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And it even hits off like right near the coast. You know, the lighthouse is right there near the water and it spreads the way a spill would. It's just outward, you know, and it's so hard to contain. Uh, so I, I didn't know that. And that's, wow, that's, that, that lines up perfectly.
0: I didn't even think about an oil spill for it. When I saw it, it immediately set, looked to me like, oh, this guy is thinking about an acid trip it's like the sort of <laughs> it's the sort of rainbow visuals coming off of everything it, it sort of shimmers off everything around it so to me i it was like okay this is This is stalker on LSD. Yeah,
1: (laughs) That's a really good way to put it. Uh, I was definitely thinking that you could take like any four minutes of this movie and it would make a good music video.
0: (laughs) As long as you don't set that song in it too early.
2: Well, the other thing about it is like with a hallucination or dream state, it functions well with the idea of mutations off the first where it's like if you're in a dream uh, and you start an idea and then you go to another idea and then there's another idea after that, that third idea might not relate to the first at all. Because it's not that it keeps a coherence in like a linear plot. It's that as long as there's some sort of logical connection where it can like bump off the first one, it can just yes. mutate from the first, or sorry, mutate from the last one that it was in with no connection to the first at all.
1: Right, the middle item connects the ends, even though they have no connection. It's like a mental Markov chain, where the previous item is all that matters. Right. So one thing uh, that I was basically waiting for the entire movie, and I about 80 minutes in I realized it wasn't going to happen, is the tower. In the book, the first words are, The Tower. There's a tower in it. It's the centerpiece of the entire freaking story, and it is basically not in the movie. They call it the tower in the book uh, because Lena calls it the tower because she has this idea that it's a tower. It's not. Re- it doesn't really look like one. It's actually underground. That's the book starts with them discovering this underground structure, basically a tower that goes down rather than up. Right? There's like steps and layers. But she can't shake the idea that it's actually a tower, even when the others decide to call it something else, like a pit or whatever. And there's basically no tower here. She goes underground a little bit at the end, underneath the lighthouse, so they sort of smoosh the two together. But I was waiting all film for this crazy-ass tower that, again, is the centerpiece of the entire story, and it doesn't really happen. guess we'll have to get into the ending a little bit here, because when they go into the tower underground, they find this weird writing scrawled on the walls. And it's, like, weirdly, like, biblically-apocalyptic-style writing. Like, the, the, the fruit of the seed that will destroy the world will come again to judge, like, stuff like that. And it just goes on and on forever, right? And it just sounds kind of vaguely, confusingly prophetic. And then they look closer, and they realize that the writing is actually a living organism, that some creature is writing in a biological ink, sort of. And as they go deeper and deeper, they get closer to this creature, and eventually she confronts it. And it turns out it is the lighthouse keeper, who I guess was exposed to the initial meteor or whatever it is, and has sort of been transformed by it into some sort of alien being, and it's like this crazy acid-trippy thing. And that's kind of what happens when she meets that giant, like, pillowy cloud eyeball thing under the, uh, under the lighthouse. They just sort of smooshed it all together, somehow made it even weirder than it was in the book.
0: I think that's part of what the movie can do. As opposed to the book, is that you can't build as much onto the ideas. What they try to do is keep it open and, and keep it vague and keep it like very, you know, visually stimulating. And to me, can't if they were to try to go into into that much detail and discovery, you know, it would be half the movie. Whereas here, it just felt like an emotional culmination.
1: I think that's a really good point and really well put. I think it's actually being very smart there. A movie is at a disadvantage to a book because in the book, it can describe her mental reaction to running into this creature. Um it's It'll take like three pages to describe what it's like being near this and why it's unbearable and all the things that go through her head. You can't do that in a movie anyway. But what a movie can do that a book can't is to just overwhelm you with the visuals and the sound. So it just sort of doesn't try to do the thing that the medium is not set up for, and instead it does the thing that its medium is set up for.
0: In the same sense, I think one of the lines in one of the downtimes where they're resting for the night I believe is that the psychologist is trying to is trying to face whatever's in the lighthouse and Lena's is trying to fight it. And I think that just influenced me because from when she gets on the beach to when she leaves the lighthouse, basically, I was just like, oh, this is like the final boss of a video game. It it, it very much felt like like it was just, you know, now everyone's gone, the scenery's changed, and, and there's this big grand intro, and she tries to fight it, and she doesn't know, and and it's resisting things and then you know she's going to find like the master sword and and kill it. I <laughs> I couldn't shake the feeling that it was that it was like influenced by that.
1: You've heard the phrase kill it with fire. It turns out that is indeed how you kill this thing. Uh and by the way, I mentioned the tower earlier. Lena has two possible meanings that name, either torch or tower. So pretty deliberately chosen. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Josie by the way, Hebrew feminine form of Yosef, which means he will add. Uh, she, of course, is the one who's most comfortable with the mutation, with the addition to her. So those two... I didn't notice anything about the other names that stood out, but those two, at least, very deliberately chosen.
2: Oh, there's got to be something about Shepherd.
1: Oh, yeah, the last name Shepherd. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, she was the first one to die. They lose their Shepherd, and then they're totally chaotic afterwards, you know. But they spent so little time establishing her as, like, a leader or the glue of the group or anything that if they were trying to do anything with that name, nothing really happened. She was just the first to die is all it was, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I did want to talk about the mutations a little bit because there's obviously a lot of stuff there and what you think about the mutations is going to have a lot to do with what you think the ending means because it has one of those... Famous, capital A, capital E, ambiguous endings uh that a movie like this was just bound to have. I think there's an interesting little thing where you see those weird little mutant deer that are basically moving in perfect symmetry with one another. And at the time, you don't really know what that is. I'm going to call them Deerpool Gangers because they were basically <laughs> identical. And later on, you see Tessa Thompson's character... And she's got, like, the plants coming out from under her skin like veins. Vine veins, basically. And one of the deer was like that, too, which I didn't realize until I went back and looked at it. Uh, one of the deer had kind of plants coming out of it. And the other was perfectly pristine and white. So I'm assuming that, in retrospect, the kind of veiny, viney deer was the one with the gross on it, that was the real animal, and the pristine one was the copy. Interesting.
2: So actually, Although, that, might, that might come into this um, other observation I had on the, um, when Lena looks under the microscope at the cell splitting, um, and the second time, I didn't notice this all the first time, the cells are different when they split one is very lit and bright and beautiful and the other ones just kind of dark it was interesting because most of the time when we saw the dividing it's you know dividing into two copies basically that are pretty much the same and then just building off of the copies of copies of copies but they the each of the splits is the same unless there's a problem unless there's a mutation right
1: yeah well that all all that stuff though about kind of becoming a plant she seems at, at peace with it you know, like, hey, at least I'm turning into something else. This kind of reminds me of people wanting their ashes scattered. You know, the idea that you become part of the ocean or part of some spot that you once liked or, or even that you're buried and you become fertilizer, literally. That's a, that kind of mirrors a line from the book. Specifically, a death that would not mean being dead is how the book puts it. That's kind of what happens here, this idea that you become part of this larger thing, right? You become part of this larger organism, area X, whatever it is, that idea that death is not the end if you become part of something else. It's clearly trying to take a more high-minded approach to it. It clearly doesn't think that these people being absorbed by this ecological tumor, it's saying it's not necessarily a bad thing.
0: And especially because she seems very, like you said, okay with the idea and accepting of it and that. Seems partially significant because she's the one who probably understands it technically the most. Because yes. that happens like right after her her revelation of of the similarities of how that behaves versus you know how you scramble a signal or you know how you how you distort something. So it seemed like once she understood, she was okay with it. Everyone else was viewing it from an emotional standpoint, a, a reactionary, a trying to defeat it. And she was trying to understand it, and once she understood, everything was okay.
1: She kind of she gets that it's not they're not under attack, you know. That's and then Lena obviously accepts that later when she says, "I'm not sure it wanted anything." Tessa Thompson's character kind of gets it a little earlier. It actually reminds me of a quote which I, I could not find, which really bugs me. But I'm so going to paraphrase the hell out of it. Uh, but it basically says if you looked at early life, you'd see like these bigger, stronger creatures eating smaller and weaker ones. And it'd be really easy to imagine that that was just going to continue forever, right? And that eventually the planet would be dominated by just giant, super powerful creatures. Instead, these weak, tiny little creatures take over the world with planning and making weapons and competing on a completely different plane, which is intelligence rather than force. Uh, and the Shimmer kind of feels like that. The alien Shimmer is winning a war on a front that we didn't even know existed. It's like that other quote, too, where generals always fight the last war. And that's kind of what happens here. We throw all our different professions at the Shimmer, uh, that are represented in the expedition. They throw all human ability and knowledge at the problem: psychology, biology, warfare, and it's useless because the alien is doing something completely orthogonal to our notions of how force works. In
2: the screenplay, there's like super giant ocean organisms that are there. So maybe, maybe the the movie would have had like, yeah, we tried to send in boats, but there were mega whales
1: or something. Yeah, there were there were krakens. Uh, there be krakens. Uh, not in the book, by the way. Nothing about that in the book. Gotcha. That's interesting. That's crazy. But uh, related to the whole golf spill thing and how it's inspired by that, that actually fits really well with another note I had here, which is that in the books, there's a, a very big emphasis on bureaucracy, particularly the second book, which expands on the story and kind of brings in like a southern reach, like middle manager type. I don't know if this came across in the movie as well as it should have, but like the cell she's in and the interrogation room, they're not that pristine looking. Like, in sci-fi movies, those things are usually really clean, right? Especially when someone's wearing, like, a clean suit. Uh, they're kinda dingy. And that's very deliberate in the books because it's trying to suggest a society that's sort of dying and knows it. Like, they have no solution for this thing. It's happened, you know, years and years ago. They're sorta trying to hide it, but nobody seems to really care anymore. The rest of the world is distracted. The rest of the world's fiddling while Rome mutates. And there's just, like, budget problems. The Southern Reach has, like, been written off. And also in the books, it kind of turns out that they've had, like, just dozens of expeditions, and they're, like, mixing and matching people to try to, like, control for variables and learn about why some come back. They treat people like lab rats, basically— So that emphasis on, like, bureaucracy and callousness towards human life absolutely fits with the gulf spill inspiration that you mentioned, Slappy. Interesting. And it becomes a bigger point as the series goes on, too, because, like I said, the whole second book is pretty much about, like, bureaucratic fiddling and fighting. And, you know, there's this—basically, there's a tumor on the world, and there's still middle management— paranoid thinking other people are trying to supplant them. Like, that doesn't even stop when the world has cancer.
2: So in the screenplay, the reason that Ventress goes in isn't because she has cancer, it's because she's about to be replaced through bureaucracy In the, in the screenplay, they've been trying to go into this thing for 13 years, and so she's seen as a failure by the government, and so the Pentagon's about to take over instead of, like, this group of scientists or whatever. whatever. So I'm assuming, like, this is the last time before they just, like, nuke it, I'm guessing would is kind of, like, an implication of the screenplay, I guess. So she's, instead of being driven by this I don't have anything to lose kind of thing and I've just been here and am I going to see what's happening she's driven by the fact that um, she thinks it's like the last chance before they might do something really
1: crazy yeah let's talk a little bit about the motivations of the characters there um, because they there's that line from Shepard we're all damaged goods And she says this in a way that on the surface makes it seem like they're all just damaged people, so therefore they're willing to take a really risky mission. But, you know, it turns out by the end, it really means that these people are sort of attracted to the Shimmer itself. Like, they're looking for answers. They're looking for purpose. They're looking to make sense of their suffering, sort of. It is obviously just general self-destruction, too. But you could tell Lena's trying to find something out here. And she also says during the same conversation that there were two bereavements, uh, one for her daughter, which she lost, and the other for the person she used to be. That fits very strongly with the idea of annihilation, the idea that you annihilate your previous self with every dramatic experience and you become a new person from it. It also gets really literal at the end when Lena has to literally destroy a version of herself. It's not exactly the monomyth, it's not the shadow self so much as it's just the rainbow self, but its it's pretty much the shadow self.
2: Yeah no I had I had uh, noted that um the two beings thing as well and then I think that also ties in with the um well I'm not sure what to quite call it so one it ties in that they the the two cells that one is like the brightly lit iridescent cell and one is like the kind of like darker cell it's not like two cuz they said echoes kind of a few times and I I didn't yes. I didn't really I wasn't sure about Echoes, to me, is interesting because echoes is, to me, an echo is the same principle of somebody, but it gets softer and softer over time. It doesn't yeah. really mutate.
1: Okay. Yeah, right.
2: I-, I didn't love that metaphor for it. because It's it not did... a good
1: metaphor. You're right.
2: Yeah, it, it didn't really strike me because, okay, I-, I get it, but it's not that it changes. It just gets Quieter and quieter. When she splits into the two, or splits, I'm not sure if that's the right way, but there's the two copies of each other where there's the two copies of Kane and there's two two copies of Lena. I'm not sure if that's supposed to be as if you could put all of your undesired characteristics or whatever you're the most, um, you find the most pain in. And then basically cut it out as if it were a tumor. Like if you could somehow put all the painful things that you don't want to remember, which kind of seems like the kind of thing that Kane may have done. Is Kane seems to have lost his memory when he came out. I mean, also he might be like an actual copy and alien kind of thing.
1: It's clearly not him. I mean, they even have a discussion where she goes, "You're not Kane, are you?" And he's like, "I don't think so." <laughs>
2: right. Yeah. Um, and also when we talk about the ambiguous ending later some of the some of the logistics of that seems makes it seem to me like it's not actually ambiguous anyway but there's there's kane where he lost his memory and so the per the version of him that came back doesn't have the memory of lena cheating on him i'm guessing is is kind of thing is like so when deciding between the two of them i guess sort of that wants to live and one that wants to die the one that doesn't want to die is the one that has no memory basically just has the very very primal memory of Lena and like he's told like go find Lena and then later or earlier in the movie resign he asks her are you Lena kind of a thing because he he was specifically just told to find him like he's like a child kind of thing where he's given like one mission by this other cane that actually remembers and he doesn't remember
1: and her copy seems to kind of retain some feeling for the immolated husband too so there's there's still like an emotional connection that the copy has with that uh that that the original had too
2: yes it goes over to the copy and then puts his hand on it so i i did like that because the two pairs end with each other right the two pairs that actually have the i don't know the undesirable characteristics, I don't know what to really call it. But those the, the, those two end up together, which is the fake Lena and the real Kane, if you want to put it that way. And then the other pair is the uh, mutated Kane, and then the pretty strongly think it's the non-mutated Lena.
1: Yeah, it, it is. It, yeah. I think so. The straightforward reading of the I change at the end is, oh, she's the devil. Uh, I changed... But in the book, it's, that's not what happens at all. In the book, it's very clear that she is just sort of infected by the shimmer. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think they call it the Brighter or the, something like that, Brightness. And she's just walking around with it. And she's different. And she's out in the world now, different, for whatever reason. And I actually never finished the trilogy. I guess that's a pretty damning indictment that I read two out of three books in a trilogy and stopped, which I've never done in my life before this. They're not bad. I just didn't see if it was going anywhere. But through those two books, at least, it's clear that she's just infected and kind of walking around with it. So I think that's what happens here, too. The only way you can say it's not the real Lena is if you think for some reason during her blackout, they switched places and she became the dark rainbow creature also, which doesn't really make sense to me.
0: I I agree with the theory that it's likely the, we'll say, created Kane, and it's the original Lena who's been affected by the zone, but I don't really know which one is more interesting to me or not. (laughs) Because of where the movie leaves it, we don't know anything about, you know, Kane has no personality and Lena is likely traumatized from the whole thing. So it just sort of leaves it at it's not finished instead of it. It, does, it just doesn't feel very provoking of thought other than is it the double or is it not?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which, which A is, I think a pretty answerable question and B not actually interesting to answer regardless of whether or not you think it's answerable. Yeah.
2: That and just logistically, I don't understand how it could not be Kane being the copy and Lena not being the copy because The other version of Kane blew himself with a phosphorus grenade, didn't burn down everything when it happened. Then when the other Lena did get hit with a phosphorus grenade, it burned down everything. Something different happened between those two scenarios. It it doesn't make sense for it to be the same. They have to be different. It does not make sense for it to be... They have to be different because the outcomes changed. Whoever got hit with a phosphorus grenade One time, it did a lot of damage and killed everything. The other time, it didn't. Yeah, one of them
1: started a chain reaction and the other didn't. Good point.
0: But I think Kane... was uh killed by the phosphorus grenade his hair was all loose and the other one was was slicked back so you know slicked back tends to be the the evil robot uh, <laughs> yeah correct like,
2: like, right. so
0: i'm pretty sure that's
2: definitive they should have given one of those mustaches from uh, star trek it's the next worst thing to the goatee <laughs> i want to talk at least about a couple of scenes in particular like um i i'm pretty much just we we're talking about before like the gushing thing like the scene that i want to yeah, gush yeah. about is the um as soon as Ventress starts exploding though that was beautiful that was one of the one of the most gorgeous affecting scenes I've ever seen, and the sound all of a sudden, I all of a sudden just forgave the movie for what I thought was a pretty boring soundtrack before because I was caught off guard by how much I loved the sound that was going on when it was like the alien form with like the weird kind of like almost like eye shape. The sound was incredible. that sounded amazing. I actually have like out of i have I've gotten that soundtrack just for that sound because I wasn't also sure if it was part of the music like in in the movie you can't really separate the music from if it's the sound that's actually occurring or if it's the sound of the film and i was actually curious if that was actually the artist who made the soundtrack if that was that really deep pulsing sound was actually in the song and it is that sounded amazing i loved the texture on that sound i thought that was absolutely stunning and i thought it was Really beautiful
1: I've heard it referred to in at least one review as that they said something like that's going to be known as the annihilation noise the same way there's the inception noise yes,
2: and i I guess I guess I kind of hope it doesn't like just appear everywhere like the inception noise, but gorgeous uh, the other scene that i'm I, when we touched on a little bit was the um the mimicking scene that happens after that, right where I liked the the idea of like it was both that it responded and it and it didn't, so it kind of it kind of changed where. Um, at first I wanted to say it was mirroring, but it, and then and the, she actually says it's mirroring and it's not quite that it's mirroring. It's that it's, it's sort of trying to, right. Oh, and I was going to look this up, but it reminded me of there's this doctor who episode. I really don't like doctor who, but there's one episode I really liked where it's, it's something that is mimicking where it's, it starts to mimic the doctor where it's like, it says something that the doctor said a long time ago and then it gets closer and closer and then it actually starts anticipating what the Doctor mm. Who, and it's this kind of like this creepy standalone horror-ish idea. And standalone episodes are the only good episodes of Doctor Who. Um, but <laughs> and it's it's less that it's mimicking; it's more like a dance where one is like leading, right? Where it's one kind of like pushes and pulls with each other. And then uh, I, I just liked the I really just liked the concept where when she was trying to escape through the door and she was being crushed, the the mimic was pushing harder. The metaphor because oh she was harder she was trying to escape. The more it was yes. trying to push through her, right?
1: Yes. Uh, right. Fantastic. Oh, and self-destructive—you're literally blocking yourself. Right. You're
2: blocking yourself, and then the harder you're trying to get out through this wall, this this thing that you cannot push through because it's a door. So if you were, if you could, if you could, you know, I, this is weird. You could just chill and relax. But like, if you yeah, could, yeah. Like, let go and like kind of like. Step back for a second and calmly open that you could, but it's the fact that you're trying to press so hard through it, and this other thing, this force that is basically kind of mimicking you, mirroring you, whatever you want to say, but going, but like seeing you and then acting on whatever you're doing, crush up against you because you keep trying to escape.
1: Yes, uh, it was a great, just quick way of showing
2: a self-destructive tendency.
1: And not only that, but that's how she beats it in the end. When she's calmed down, she's been knocked out, she wakes up. What she realizes is, this is going to do what I tell it to do, so I'm going to hand it this grenade. <laughs> and it'll just go, oh, okay, I, li- I like grenades then. And that's how she destroys it. Uh, as for the mimicking, I decided it was like a child trying to imitate behavior at sees it can it can come really close, it's not perfect, right but that's it's trying to learn uh, so it's imperfect, but in this case it's it's better at it than a child, so it's close.
0: which is kind of unusual because the source that it came from, it's not like this is the first human that it's seen, but it's like it's relearning every single time in the same way that everything that it that it affects doesn't you know is unique, right Every animal that you see and every flower that you see seems to be its own unique version of it it re it relearns how to do things every single time it does it
2: right and the orobora tattoo that slowly appears on lena's
1: arm yeah i hated that i hate that so much it's it, there's way too much okay i understand mutation oh things are mutating it's kind of chaotic fine but like the alien creates tattoos on people's arms what does that even mean i the, it just seems... <laughs> 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 like,
0: the alien used to be the in a band de- i don't know <laughs> This is this is intuitively obvious if you've seen the alien movie. They're not happy go
1: lucky. But... <laughs> I guess I guess it's just it's too it's too colloquial. You know what I mean? Like I understand like universal concepts like mirroring or mutating or things that don't require so much intent. But it's like if it doesn't understand how humans even work, how is it absorbed enough of our knowledge to be like here's the meaning of Ouroboros and I'm going to put it on the same spot in your arms?
2: So apparently it comes from Thorinston, So who has that tattoo on her? And it kind of shows up on uh, Lena's arm slowly or she kind of absorbing it. But that's but I agree with you, because what it what it does is and this is actually something that's consistent ish in the film, which is it's not just DNA. And that's actually where the the theme gets a little confusing. And I'm not sure where I end up with it, because there's also the house that they run across is Lena's house. And that doesn't make sense. It's not it's not that, you know, it's not that it grew naturally out of the you know, like a plant or whatever. It's not that like one of the trees like resembles Lena's house. Like it's growing to the shape of Lena's house. Cause it's like mimicking her thought or something like that. It's literally Lena's house They even have a, they even cut away where when she's, when she was looking at the DNA, I think it cuts away from her sitting at the exact same spot on the table to the shot of Kane with the glass. And it just to, just to kind of reinforce it that. And when you see the staircase, Uh, you kind of might just intuitively kind of see that it's the staircase you saw earlier when she was there with Kane.
0: Those kinds of staircases just work way too well in movies. They always... For some reason, those staircases I haven't seen very commonly in my real life, but those just always get me a little worked up if they look.
2: Where they have like the like the nice wall for pictures, so that you, the camera can always like show a bunch of, like family photos and then like you.
1: It's the farmhouse staircase, mm-hmm. like is the way I always think of it.
2: Yeah, and so that that to me is like that. that's the thing with the tattoo. So those both of those things have nothing to do with DNA, right? So it's not that the tattoo has come into the DNA, and it's it's kind of like refracting around, and so the movie has its own kind of strange logic where it it just it doesn't obey its own logic all the way through it doesn't seem to be, or it just is it's actually because i was actually trying to think of like if this actually occurred where there's like this prism that appeared one of the really interesting things that would happen with a prism if we weren't so concerned with it killing all of us one of the things we could find out is what does the universe actually value like, you can could, you could actually find out, like, the universe values psychology and thoughts and thinks that they're real and refracts them around. And then an actual thing where it's like, maybe it wouldn't do it with some other thing that we really value. It's like, oh, but it doesn't. it's not affected by the prism at all. Right. right. And so one of the things that the prism seems to value is like memory because it puts on this tattoo and it has this it creates, I guess, this house somehow. But again, I have no idea how the house gets there unless it's literally the only thing that kind of makes sense to me is that uh, Lena's an unreliable narrator and that it's actually a dream. It's not, it's really not a physical space at all. It's, actually a dream.
1: Well, I mean, the guy interrogating her does say, are you sure this wasn't a hallucination? She says, well, we all saw it. So there is something yeah, a little bit there. But look, I'm a big believer in the idea that you have to give every movie at least one core premise that you just accept, because without it, there's no movie. So I'm willing to accept the core premise of, you can refract DNA the way you can refract light. That's sort of the hand-wavy sci-fi, here's this other thing in science that we know is real. Turns out there's a version of it that kind of applies to DNA. I could go with that. But that does not explain memory, or tattooing. Or emotions in dead boars, or anything like that. That's a whole other leap that it's asking us to take beyond the initial premise.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, also, so also was, um... also static tattoo, right? Everything else that seems to be constantly changing. The- the whole concept of a tattoo is, is that you get it and it's there forever, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's like, I'm gonna change everything except this sick tat. That's awesome. I'm leaving that just the way it is. That is objectively a sweet thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, you're gonna have four heads and your insides are gonna move, but the tat stays. Yeah. I totally agree. Totally agree.
0: wild them in the end you've got a hit you can have flaws problems but wild them in the end and you've got a hit